everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And this is Nassina Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. So here's a question. Is it good for your children to ask you if you're in a bad mood? Or if you're having a certain feeling, Mommy, are you angry at me? Or are you just angry in general? How's that for a question? Is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Well, my guest today is Bethany Saltman, who's come back for one more visit to talk about her book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. And we had her on last week in a fascinating conversation about you know, a study in psychology years ago that Bethany has really studied and updated called The Strange Situation. It was a a study done back in the 50s where uh, two chairs were put in a room and a mother was sitting in the chair and there were toys on the floor and the baby, the one-year-old or two-year-old, was on the floor playing with the games and toys on the floor and a stranger would come in the room and then the mother would leave the room. And so here we have a strange situation. So how does the baby react when the stranger's in the room and when the mother comes back in the room? Is the baby angry at the mother for leaving her? Well, we're here to talk about that today, but I wanted to start with grown-ups, you know, know, children as they get a little older and asking their parents, their mother, their father, are you angry at me? What are you feeling, Mom? What are you feeling, Dad? Bethany, welcome back to The Positive Mind. And there's the question. Is it good for children to ask their parents if they're having a bad day, how they're feeling, what the feeling might be at the moment, et cetera? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, you know, it's a question that, you know, I'm not a clinician and I'm not a so-called expert in um, child development. Um, I've studied attachment for uh, a lot of years. And what I've surmised is that based on the science of attachment, um, to be able to ask your parents about their state of mind and their feelings is actually an indication of the child being aware that the adult has states of mind and moods rather than everything is just an onslaught of victimized kind of feeling or affect, you know? So, so if a kid feels permission and empowered to say, Hey, you seem like you're in a bad mood. That's a great thing. And the parent can then say, actually, I am in a really, you know, crappy mood and it's not you and I'm sorry. And let's start over. And, you know, you may, you, sometimes you might have bad moods too. How, how are you feeling today? Or, you know, so, so, from an attachment point of view, um, being aware of our minds, our states of mind, this is called mentalization or reflective functioning. Other people call it mind-mindedness. And this is what we get when we are grown, when we develop with a secure attachment in our home. Yeah, I mean, it just makes practical sense. If you're a six-year-old and you can ask your mother, are you frustrated? Or yeah. That shows a certain emotional intelligence. I mean, I exactly. think it, it's a way for the child to say, I have feelings myself. I know I exactly. have different moods. What permission, what a nice gift to be able totally. to look at your parent and name the feeling and ask them if that's the feeling. Uh, I can't exactly. imagine how my life would have been different if I could have turned to my father and asked him, 
hey, Dad, uh, are you angry at me or are you angry at something else? Um, totally. And yes. because as children, you make it up. You make up what what they're feeling. And sometimes you'll internalize it and think, well, they're feeling that towards me. And what a gift to the child to say, wait, no, this goes out into the world. My anger is going out there. It's not going towards you. So you don't have to take that in. Right. And then the child learns that they have moods and thoughts and feelings also. And so when they are feeling an onslaught of sadness or despair or frustration that they can't go to school, they can't see their friends, they can't have Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas is canceled. I mean, this stuff is so intense for all of us right now um, that we have some space around our feelings and we can say, oh, I'm feeling this because of this. Therefore, it will change. And therefore, I am not this feeling. And therefore, I have some power over this feeling. And I'm in a relationship with this feeling. And that's the liberation of what a secure attachment has to offer. And I don't have to walk around with this feeling for years. I can have other feelings as things go. So sometimes you get over-identified with your father, your mother's anger, and you take that in. And then you just become this sullen child for years because you're, you're not allowed to have any other emotion. You're not to have any other other feeling. And children are like masters at just thinking that everything is their fault on some level. Yeah, they're absorbers. Big time. And and they don't like mentally have the capacity to understand that it might be, you know, if if it's not in the relational field to share and to say things like, you know, are you angry at me or is it something else? Right. So it's really the adult who has to model that to the child um, and by having that mentalize to having the capacity to mentalize on their own and to be able to say, honey, I'm sorry, I'm not angry at you. I'm frustrated at the situation. And it was something that you said in our first show and you say in the book around mothers being human, women being human in the sense that we have these emotions. Like I think there is like a cultural sense that you're not supposed to show this. You're not supposed to show your anger or your sadness or your, you know, even hysteria when it happens, you know, it's so-called hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So-called. But that, that it's, it's kind of a mission to sort of normalize our internal experience, you know, as human beings. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this is a very subtle point. I'm not suggesting that it's, quote, okay to, you know, vent on your kids, for your, right. to be yeah. raging yeah. at your kids. No. That, that's, in fact, absolutely not the point. But the way that we become more in control of our emotions is by metabolizing them in our own bodies and minds. So, so when I'm feeling rage, when I'm feeling resentment, when I'm feeling frustration, I have to admit that to myself and I have to feel the feelings. Otherwise they come out all over the place. So it's, it's this ironic thing when we think we need to be quote, protecting our kids from the worst parts of ourselves, we do the opposite because we're we're they become a shadow self and and they we act out all over the place instead of when we say you know what i'm human i feel rage i feel resentment i feel frustration even about my beloved child and so i can find the grown up space to have those feelings and to take care of myself because i matter because i'm a i'm a human being and then I have a much more, a cleaner kind of engine, if you will, when I'm relating to my child. Yeah, because it makes sense. You're, you're, you're actually 
not saying acting things out. You're actually saying engage in a dialogue. Well, I'm not suggesting that our kids are, you know, taking care of us or curious. You know, I don't want kids to feel like, ooh, mommy's upset. Let me inquire. I'm saying if there is those when there are those cases where our emotions spill over and our kids can feel it then they should also have the mind-mindedness to say, ooh, I notice a shift here. Let me figure it out. But ultimately, it's our job as the adult to take care of our feelings. And the way that we take care of our feelings is by knowing that we have them and by um, taking care of them, not with our kids necessarily. I'm just saying that it will happen occasionally, and that's okay. So in my intro, I, I mentioned the famous study about this strange situation. And the title of your book is called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. And last show, we talked about the three styles of attachment that are really international across countries, across the world. Um, And we talked about 65% of children feel that they are securely attached, that they have a secure base in the mother. The mother will come back into the room in this um, procedure, and the child will be able to self-soothe, get back to a a condition of soothing and feeling okay, and that 35% don't. 35% um, are changed, and their nervous systems are on alert or whatever it is, and they never... I want to talk about those, the uh, the 35%, and, um, you know, use a good portion of today's show talking about what we can do, what parents can do, uh, what mothers and fathers can do to yeah. maybe alter that, change that. They get the information, yes, your child is insecurely attached. It's either an avoidant attachment or a resistant slash ambivalent attachment. Now what do you do with that? So right. can you talk about you know how valuable this information is? Because I, I'm going to be an advocate for for many parents to actually go through this procedure and is this procedure happening and can you sign up for it? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, and if not, why not? Because it's obviously such a pervasive international situation and condition. Why wouldn't you be able to go to a place and try this out and get some results from it? So go ahead. Right. You, you talk. Well, there's a lot there. First of all, in the strange situation, Remember, we talked about last time, the most important moment is the reunion when the caregiver returns and the child is soothed back to whatever state they are, you know, they're kind of resting state. Um, And the the caregiver, so it's not that they self-soothe, it's that the parent helps them soothe. And eventually we grow into a state of being able to self-soothe. But um, the strange situation is looking at the parent's ability to soothe the child and the child's ability to use the parent to soothe themselves. So that's a really, really important point, especially yes. in yes. the United States, where we love these concepts of, of independence. And we like it when our babies are independent. And actually, from an attachment point of view, that's something that you want to be careful of. You don't want a one-year-old to appear independent because, trust me, they're not independent. If they appear to be independent, there's something going on where they feel like they they need to, you know, not they're not getting their needs met. So they're going to appear like they don't need you, but they need you. Right. So that's one thing. 
Is the strange situation available for parents? No, it's not. It's a clinical, I mean, it's a research tool. Right. It's not a clinical tool. So it's like, you know, if you have, um, you know, it's like getting a, a, a um, you know, like a, a getting on a treadmill to test your heart for everybody in the world. Like that's, that only really is yeah. um, indicated when there is trouble. Um, and it's generally used for research. It's not used clinically and it's certainly not used um, to just give parents this information. And why? Because it's complicated and it's, it, it won't really do most people much good. What are you going to do if you learn that your child is insecurely attached? As I've said before, the most important thing that any of us can do is to become more aware of attachment. So reading this book is a great first step. It's, and that's not just me you know, trying to sell books. It's, it's really the truth of the matter is the more interested we become in ourselves and our relationships, the more secure our children become. There's this big web, this matrix of, um, you know, of insight that we, once we just start to see it, it starts to work its magic. It's an incredible thing. And avoidance happens when we don't see the matrix, if you will. We don't see attachment because we've been conditioned by our parents and by our culture, largely also, to think that relationships don't matter. Why? Because we've been so vulnerable and we've been hurt. The resistant child is conditioned to think that um, we need to work really hard and, and you know, it's that push-pull kind of experience. Um, and, and so they're aware of attachment, but they don't trust it. And so the, the solutions are the same. If you're, a, if you're a parent and you think that your child is insecurely attached for whatever reason, then you know, get therapy for yourself. Bring attachment to mind. Bring your own mind to mind. It doesn't really matter. You don't need to go through the strange situation. We could all benefit from becoming more secure in ourselves, in our states of mind, in our feelings, in our bodies by um, learning how to think about what we're going through. You know, especially these days, we all need support and it's going to be good for all of us. Mindfulness practice, meditation, yoga, therapy, friendship, relationships, orient toward relationships and your children will become more secure. So it's and not delight. Orient yeah. toward delight. Right. So if you're if you're child starts to develop this resistant pattern, this avoidant pattern, whatever, don't treat the child, treat yourself. Exactly. <laughs> you get in touch with feelings. You get in touch with your own avoidance, your own resistance, exactly. your own That's exactly ad right. adaptation and attachment style yep. that you learn your from strategies. your- strategies. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's a perfectly reasonable, coherent pattern strategy right. to be avoidant or resistant. It's not, there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a, it's a really good strategy for protecting yourself. Right. And, and so to remember that, you know, we're so vulnerable. Our feelings, you know, it's, it's really important to think about this attachment system has developed not just to keep us safe from predators or fed, but to keep us feeling felt. And when we don't feel felt, we have to protect ourselves because it hurts that much. So it makes sense to, let's say, okay, since mommy doesn't feel me, uh, my feelings aren't felt. It makes sense for me to go out and, you know, focus on succeeding or achieving. Absolutely. You know, yep. or getting things, being materialistic or whatever. It would exactly. make sense. So feelings aren't worth anything. Uh, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to That's adapt. exactly right. And you may be of the mind that that's fine. 
And so, you know, this idea of taking kids through the strange situation really doesn't make any sense. Like if you are um, someone who's really concerned about your child, that's enough. Just start there. Bring your bring yourself into view. Consider yourself. Ask, become curious about your feelings. Become curious about the way you do things, why you do what you do. You know, don't pathologize yourself or your child. And, you know, you, you're not going to know if your child is resistant or avoidant. Trust me, it's a very complicated and it's a re- really mm. nuanced mm. kind of, you know, thing that you have to learn to observe. It's not, there's nothing obvious about it. And so just, you know, hang tight with the feeling of, wow, I'd like things to change. You know, I'm, I'm not feeling good about our relationship. That's an amazing thing to start with. If you're not feeling good about the relationship between you and your child, then develop a better relationship with yourself. The first person who you talk to every day is yourself. Notice your tone of voice. Notice your expectations. Notice the standards that you're you're holding to yourself. Notice how you beat yourself up. Notice how you insult yourself. Notice how you you don't want to um, get close to your own feelings. And lo and behold, your child will mirror that. And that's okay. That's why, you know, you can keep taking care of yourself. We need to give ourselves permission, particularly women in this culture, to be curious about ourselves, to be gentle with ourselves, to not feel like we have to live under this fear that if we're not tough, that we're somehow, you know, going to destroy our children. It's there, There's such a fear of and and that's why I have such a beef with Dr. Sears because he's taken something that I hold so dear the science of attachment and he's completely hijacked it and turned it into another shame-based fear-based shtick that women are supposed to align themselves with so you're if you're a mother at a party let's say and you're talking about your fears that you're not doing it right or you're worried about your child like she doesn't react to me a certain way or she's having a hard time in second grade or she's this or that you know you yeah. you, you can pretty much assure that person that the fact that you're even concerned and even talking about this is a chance that she's probably in the 65 percent totally yeah right Avoidant people don't talk about their kids at parties. Sometimes preoccupied people do. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, right. you know, and that's fine. You know, the, the, the classifications are really for the scientific study of how these things um, shift and change over time and over the lifespan. From, from like a personal parent point of view, it's best to assume we're all secure and we're all insecure. You know, we all come from a state of perfection, and we've all got what it takes. And there's always work to do. So, you know, if, if you're worried, then, then try to um, be more curious about yourself and take it easy on yourself because it's those edges that get conveyed to our kids. We talk to our children the way we talk to ourselves. So think about, notice how you talk to yourself. And that, if you just do that for the rest of your life, pay attention to the way that you talk to yourself you will transform your life. And that is not just me as studying attachment for 10 years, but my life as a Zen practitioner on the cushion for 25 years. So if you're, if I mean, it just strikes me as being a parent is an opportunity for you to learn for the first time in your life how to take care of yourself. I mean, a lot of new, a lot of new parents just 
think, oh, I have a child now. I don't have time to take care of myself. I never focus on myself. I never do nice things for myself. I always, all my energy goes toward my child. You're saying self-care, I think you say it somewhere, self-care is other care? Yeah, self-care is child care. Self-care is child care. You know, yes, manis and petties are great. Baths are great. All that kind of stuff is great. I'm talking about the deep internal way that we treat ourselves on an energetic level, moment after moment after moment. You know, um, I'm all for girls trips when we can be together again. I'm all for, you know, wine and, and TV and all those fun things. Trust me, like I'm, I'm a big fan of all of that. But we can still do that and be beating ourselves to a pulp. Right. And so one of the um, tools you use and you've written about in your blog as well is this idea of delight. Now, we imagine (laughs) that every mother looks at their child, newborn, come home from the hospital, and, you know, it's just an endless (laughs) delight. I mean, we know that there's changing the diapers and and getting up in the middle of the night. Imagine is exactly correct. Right. We imagine that. But there's clearly many, many moments of delight. For sure. Um, Many moments. And many moments of other things. and, And and so one of the, one of the tools that you recommend uh, that you talk about is this practice, deliberate practice of delight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so even fathers, let's say, who can't access feelings, you know, um, are busy succeeding and doing their professions and whatever. And mothers. And right? mothers as well, of yep. course. Um, what? How do? How do? How do they get delight back? Or how do they? Well, the way I think about it is, and the reason why I love delight so much is because it, delight, mutual delight was the one thing that Mary Ainsworth, the creator of The Strange Situation, it's the one thing that she found between mothers and babies of the securely attached pairs was this feeling of mutual delight. And so I like to sort of retroactively you know, work that into the, into the system. So if, if securely attached pairs exhibit mutual delight, I believe that if we start to exhibit delight, this will move us towards security. And certainly it's true from a mindfulness point of view. And so what, you know, for someone who doesn't find it, um, you know, who's not, whose delight is not super available to them, then it becomes a practice of, um, you know, where do I find delight? I remember when I lived in New York City and um, and I would take the subway. I loved the subway. I loved just sitting there. I had nothing else I had to do. This is way before phones. Um, and I would sit there and I would just like watch people. And it was delightful. There was nothing to it. There's no, no, it's no big deal. But I just would allow myself that time on the subway to just enjoy my experience, enjoy my state of being and just delight. And so, you know, I would get off the subway and go off about my business and do whatever I had to do, which may or may not have been delightful. But that, you know, kind of orienting toward the thing that you love. It's so simple. We don't even we can't uh, we can't appreciate how impactful it is. And if we start to do that um, intentionally, it will grow. So let's say, you know, you love your new shoes. You love your shoes to be like super shiny and you love to, you know, brush them and do whatever, you know, people do with their new shoes. If you're, you know, some guy who is really into his business and loves to get dressed up. Of course, these days, nobody cares about your shoes because no one can see them. But, you know, to just really give yourself that experience of taking care of your shoes or doing the dishes or 
um, you know, mm. hugging your dog. It's an, it's an awareness practice where we become more in touch with our senses. Right. That's where delight lives. It lives in our senses and we are all having sensory experiences all the time. We just aren't aware of it. So delight enters through the senses and that's something that we can all practice all the time, no matter who you are. If you have a desire to feel closer to your child, to feel closer to your spouse, practice feeling, you know, just like make it as simple as possible. I want to feel close. I want to feel connected. Okay, great. Practice feeling. So it's it's fall here in New York, and you know I can attest to this. Driving on the highway and seeing the leaves change, it's like wow. It's like yeah, I can't get enough of it this year. Exactly. Other years, I'm like, uh, it's fall and it brings on a little depression. But this year, you know, and the last year as well, it's just an endless delight, and you can't yeah. get enough of it. You can try. I try to get one thing when I feel delight is I try to get as up close to it as possible. So I'll pick up exactly. leaves, and and I still can't get enough of it. So that's exactly. a good sign that you have these natural resources or senses of delight. But um, it strikes me that when it's not there. What do you do? There are things you can do. There's musical pieces that will always elicit something from you. If Well, it depends on the person. That's what I mean. Whatever it is that you, you know, you have to work the edges. You know, some people love a TV show. Great. Then then watch the TV show. Walk, watch football. Watch whatever it is that you are drawn to. Just begin to notice what you're drawn to. Give yourself the credit for loving that thing even okay so it's making tons of money maybe it's success that's fine but just begin to feel where you are feeling the draw to do that thing that you're drawn to do right so so i'm wondering you know we might have a really strong sense of delight in one thing how do you sort of translate that feeling to maybe what is a difficult relationship you have with a child um you know it's like there might be a temperament you know, clash or, yeah. you know, something that just, you know, it's like you can love your child, but not like them. I'm just sort of sure. putting it out there. Some people have that experience and it can be absolutely really hard to, <clears throat> you know, maybe translate that same sense of delight into something that's been a painful situation for you. Yes. And so not just make this sound simple, but the practice of delight is actually simple. So I completely understand that some relationships are fraught. And, you know, I know this from experience, of course. Um, my, my point with this practice of delight is simply that by, by opening our own hearts to this feeling of pleasure and delight, it can help us even in the most fraught relationships, because we can enter that fraughtness, that difficulty, with a little bit more space around our hearts. And so when we get into a, you know, sort of a, an enactment with someone and it's the same thing again, whether it's your child or your spouse or your neighbor or whomever, delight softens the heart. And when we continue to delight, whether it's in the leaves or the TV show or the shoes or the dog or whatever, it just, it, it creates more of a space for those fraught relationships. So it's like that self-care being childcare. Like if you can, if you can cultivate delight, you can have a little more space for maybe the tough parts of childcare. And that's and exactly right. I, I wanted to bring up, um, I found it so interesting and something that might feel counterintuitive about crying mm. and how crying I used to teach um, infant massage 
the thing that, that the parents needed to really start to, is like to not get reactive to the cry. Yeah. Because oh that God. can trigger sort of the internal infant in you. Oh, yeah. Your infant is crying. You're, you suddenly want to be crying or screaming yep. or like, yep. don't. I mean, because the what sound. What an opportunity. <laughs> I mean, you know, and people on planes are like, don't sit me by the crying baby. You know, it's just like crying is such an intense trigger. And in your book, you're like, this is a signal for attachment. Like the baby needs you. It's a need. Yeah. And like, again, if you don't have that space, you might Exactly. Not, you I do want to say that it's in the book that mothers who respond to the child in the first six months of their crying don't cry as much the second exactly. six months, which right. doesn't yeah. mean you have to respond every time to the child's no. crying, but it is a good thing. And we're going to be talking more yeah, about the good back. things that these attachment styles do when we come back with Bethany Saltman. Strange situation, a mother's journey into the science of attachment. We thank her for being here and we will be back after this musical break. We are back with The Positive Mind and Bethany Saltman, author of the book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. Before we broke, we were talking about the value of crying, which I know as an adult is one of the best things that a person can do for themselves is crying. But Nasima was asking Bethany about the importance of the infant crying. There's something about the cry that the baby's saying, I can't, I can't manage how I'm feeling right now. I need your help. Exactly. Which is oftentimes the reason we cry too, right? But, you know, your question about um, being triggered by cries, that is so true. And that is exactly why this practice of delight is so important and a practice of mindfulness and being able to tolerate our own feelings. Um, In a podcast with Sharon Salzberg, the Buddhist teacher, when the book first came out, we were talking about what makes us able to tolerate our children's rage. And I said, the thing that will help you tolerate your child's rage is you tolerating your own rage. So exactly when a child cries, that experience of being demanded of is so overwhelming because we can feel um, overwhelmed by, you know, we're, we're going to get consumed by this child's need and then annihilated it's terrifying, right? Like what is going to happen to me if all, if I don't know how to soothe this baby, if I have to soothe this baby for the rest of my life, I don't know how to do it. I don't have it in me. It, it's, it can be terrifying for a, for a parent and for a, a stranger um, to hear the cries of a child. It is all consuming and it's supposed to be, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to trigger that in us because the, the purpose of the child's cry is to get someone to stop the crying. 
And I, I wonder uh, the extent to which a mother or a father could feel guilty about their child crying. I mean, I remember oh, when totally. I was ba- when I was babysitting yeah. back when I was young in high school, baby, and there were kids crying, and I couldn't get them to stop. I felt so terrible. Like yeah, I can't no, get this person to stop crying. Yeah, no, it, it is huge. It's huge. You know, it doesn't get much more basic than this. It's so raw. It's so primitive, and you know developing our growing our capacity to experience our own emotions is the way to grow the capacity to deal with our child's emotions. Crying is a great example of that. So let's talk about the value of this because I mean, you're, you're making a great case here, but again, 65% of children, babies are securely attached. They feel as mom is a secure base from which they can go or out dad. or dad can go out and explore and then yep. come back and then be okay and then go back out again and 35% can't but these have rem- this has or rem- less so it's it's not so black and white but okay. it's just yeah less so okay how does this show up as an adult you talk about in the book the adult attachment inventory can you talk a little bit about that and how this insecure attachment shows up yeah you know it's very much like a child in the strange situation so an avoidant adult it, when you're an adult, it's called dismissing. Um, they, as we've been discussing, an, a dismissing adult really focuses on externals, um, much more interested in success and external accomplishments than relationships. And then they're bound to, with a 75% uh, predictability, raise an avoidant baby um, who doesn't depend on relationships and will then become more you know, oriented toward externals. Um, the resistant baby becomes a preoccupied adult, can become a preoccupied adult, one who has a lot of push-pull in their life, who seeks relationships very, you know, almost desperately, but then can never actually be soothed by them. So there's this state of heightened anxiety. So I guess in the book, you talk about how this shows up as, let's say, young people, as teenagers, drug abuse uh, versus being a good student versus, um, you know, uh, having normal pleasures rather than seeking out wild experiences in order to get in touch maybe with a feeling. Imagine yeah, being yeah. a teenager and not knowing what you feel and not being able to feel. This right. is this can be the result of, you know, your attachment style from your younger days. Um, talk a little bit about that because to be a securely attached child has great predictive uh, factors Absolutely. of success yes. in life. It really does, but it's so not simple. So for instance, you know, I am an interesting case study. I had a very um, sort of delinquent teenage years, um, experimented with pretty much everything. Um, But looking back, and and then I have, you know, as you'll see if you read the book, um, I am considered securely attached, which surprised the heck out of me. I never thought that in a million years, but all the signs show that that is the case. And we triangulated the data in every possible way. So there's really no doubt about it, um, which continues to sort of astonish and delight me. (laughs) Um, So, you know, but I was by no means a poster child for an insecure, for, for a secure attachment. I did terribly in school. I experimented with drugs and alcohol. I was a delinquent in many ways. Um, and I lived a pretty dangerous little life. But looking back at it, I realized that a lot of what I was doing was seeking um, connection. 
I really valued relationships. I, I, I was looking for intimacy. And, you know, I had, there's this whole nother aspect to, to attachment that we haven't really gotten into about disorganization. Right. And, and disorganization can happen in state, in cases of trauma and neglect. It's not usually a, a classification in and of itself, but it is an aspect of other classifications. So you can be securely attached and have pockets of disorganization. You can be insecurely attached and have no disorganization, or you can be very, very disorganized when in extreme cases of neglect and abuse, which is tragic. Um, I, I think, you know, I had a pretty complicated life as you know my family system was was not perfect and so i believe and this is what some of the experts have helped me see that i might have had some pockets of disorganization that i was working through but the secure my fundamental attachment security really helped me work that through in a healthy way and so i i got through it all so so yes you know in in a textbook case um and god you know I'm knocking on wood here. My daughter, who is almost 15, is pretty textbook secure. She is great in school. People consider her a leader. She is incredibly able to um, metabolize her emotions. She's emotionally intelligent. She has all the feelings. She, um, you know, and she is confident. She can experience her insecurity, but she can work through it. She has great peer relationships. Um, this is what we want in a secure attachment. Now, has she had a perfect life? No. I mean, I was, I had a lot of difficulty when she was young. I have a temper. I can be super edgy and she has learned how to deal with it. And I think it's because she has a secure attachment. So, so I really want people to understand that this is not some kind of black and white, like you get bequeathed with a crown of security and then you don't suffer. You know, we all suffer and we will all suffer. Mm. A secure attachment is just a wonderful way to be held within our suffering where we have perhaps more of a belief in ourselves and more of a belief in that the world is going to show up for us. And if you don't grow up with that, you still have all the tools, the, the world is still available for you. You just have to work perhaps a little harder to trust a little harder to be nice enough to yourself when, when you hit adversity and, and the secure attachment really helps with grit and the ability, you know, like the marshmallow test, you know, a a securely attached child will keep working at something. And, you know, that's something I've really worked on with my daughter is, you know, I don't want to just trust that she's securely attached. I'm, I'm really helping her hone in on certain tasks. You know, she has a math test tomorrow. She is really, you know, she's learned how to piece that apart and say, okay, I'm going to study this much on this day and this much on this day. And I'm going to get help from this person. I'm going to get help from this person. And I really, really want to do well on this. And if I don't, at least I will have known I did everything I could. You also talk about tenacity, which I, I think that's, is... That's what I mean by grit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, okay. I just remembered that standing out when I first read it. And that makes all the sense in the world that you have a certain sense of agency yourself. Exactly. And you're willing to apply yourself. That right. having coming from a secure attachment, you value in some unconscious way myself exactly. uh, and my relationships, and I value my presence and my future. And so That's I'm going to exactly work out. Right. I'm going to stick my nose to the grindstone and not give up. I will because I have goals. Right. Now my my goals and the tools that I used to reach my goals were were <laughs> perhaps not ideal. You know, I, because I was in kind of a weird environment and I didn't have a lot of 
you know, parents checking in on me and it was a weird time and I was my, I am who I am. And so the tools that I was using for my tenacity were certainly not the tools that I would hope my daughter would use to prove herself in the world. Right. You know, she has a much healthier toolbox than I did, but I, but the goal was the same. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be, you know, engaged. I wanted to feel everything. I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to explore myself, Hmm. you know, and looking back, I realized that's the thing that is the biggest indication of my security is that I was really interested in myself, not, you know, not just in like the teenage narcissist way, but in my mind, I wanted to know what was making me tick. And I wanted to know what made other people tick. That's what we get when we have the security to be curious instead of just like, oh, wow, I'm suffering. And, oh, you know, I hate this. Let me, you know, drink and do drugs and try to numb myself. I was never trying to numb myself. I was exploring. I was experimenting. Big difference. Which is surprising to hear because you had a rough time with your mom (laughs) in many, many ways. And I, I remember you being shocked when you were listening to your mom answer the AAI, the adult attachment inventory, where my mom's a good informant. Part of what this book is about is my reinterpreting my entire life through this lens of attachment. I assumed I was insecure. I assumed my mother would be insecure based on my history. And then once I started to really learn what attachment means, what security means, and I got my own AAI done and was secure, and then I, I, I didn't believe it. So I had my mom do her AAI, and she came out more secure than I was. And so it just shifted everything I thought I knew about what that means and what it means to be loved. That's why this has been such a radical journey. And what a relief. I mean, I I think, like, wouldn't it be a great treat? I mean, if you imagine most adults, many adults maybe, would think if my parents were having to answer questions about how they felt raising their kids, they would lie. I mean, would they be truthful would they be a good informant or would they be a bad informant and you know i I can imagine the variations that that you would get Mm -hmm. um and so i could also imagine like if they turn out to be a consistently good informant to the person who's administering this thing that you could feel tremendous relief like wow maybe i distorted a lot of it yeah maybe maybe i didn't see the real truth of my upbringing or my relationship with them. Well, I think also our bias will tend us towards, well, I don't feel secure. <laughs> you know, it's like, like you said, you really discovered what secure attachment means. It's like, right. I don't feel like I'm achieving the way I should in my life. And I don't feel like so secure in my relationship sometimes. And and so I would assume that I would be an insecure attached or avoidant. And it's like, actually, you know, the chances higher that you are securely attached. Right, and, right. Being and that securely that's attached doesn't you. mean we don't feel insecure. Exactly. And uh, Well, you and I, I are doing this show, the... so we're we're pretty good cases that we're pretty securely attached. Probably. We wouldn't be doing this show if we were Certainly con- aren't avoidant. Yeah. Yes, we're <laughs> Right. <laughs> we're curly, so we've got that going for interested, us. <laughs> you know, surely interested in all this stuff and <laughs> and you know, I was thinking like I've dug out some of my old journals and I was just thinking about the content of those. It's like, yeah, I was exploring and interested in what made me tick and so there was enough there and and also to say that it 
like you keep saying, it's it's not a lot that you have to do in order to create a secure attachment with your child. And I think it's kind of the natural thing that you would be interested and curious about your child. Exactly. And, exactly. And that's oh. like the the core of it. Like totally. Like I'm in a relationship with this child, and and it does sort of buck some of the the old traditions of like children are to be seen and not heard and all this stuff where there was such a line drawn between adults yeah. and children and we've real it's nice to hear how we've evolved i wonder if there were there were historical periods that were defined by insecure attachment or secure or secure yeah. attachment yeah, cultures yeah. certainly. Right. But but Nasima, what you're saying is so important and so beautiful and so the core of this whole thing. Um, the core of my study, the store of the the core of my book, and the core of attachment theory, which people really aren't aware of. That you know, when you think about us human beings, we're 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 so complicated, and and yet we keep going. You know, think about what this, what our culture has been through this year and somehow we're managing. It's, it's incredible how resilient we are. And, and if you think about how screwed up most of us are, and yet we still manage to raise children who can raise children of their own. And yes, we all suffer that. I mean, the Buddha says that is the nature of life. We are, we are suffering beings because we have a mind. We hunger, we are dissatisfied. Everything is impermanent. It hurts to be alive. That is the basic truth of the matter. But we can supply our children with just enough of that, you know, you're the apple of my eye. Like that feeling in and of itself will protect children against really, you know, driving themselves to the ground. That's all we need to do. And, and it's so important and it's so accessible for every single person regardless of your state of mind, your state of health, your state of economics, your state of stress. Now, all of those things will make it more difficult because obviously your system is consumed, but we can do it. We can do it. And parents are doing it every day here Absolutely. in this country, especially now. Imagine how hard it is to have a, a kid in first, second, third, fourth, fifth, oh God, these grades. Imagine. And you're a parent and you have to negotiate your schedule with theirs and totally change your schedule. I cannot imagine. It's just amazing what parents are doing now. And you're a poor single mom living in a tiny apartment and you've got a bunch of kids under 10 and you don't have the internet. And I mean, and the world is telling you that the schools are closing, but the restaurants are staying open. Are you kidding me? Right, right. Talk I mean, about, don't even get me started. So, <laughs> yeah, so there are a couple other things we want to get to. One, yeah. one is um, tools, more tools, caregiver sensitivity. So what can a parent ask themselves? Like, am I sensitive? Am I insensitive? Um, you mentioned four, four items of caregiver sensitivity. Um, do you have them uh, cooperative yeah. versus uncooperative parenting? Right. You might sort of look at how you were parented, too, in, in sort of answering these questions. But, or, you know, seeing these distinctions between sensitivity or insensitivity to baby's cues. Cooperation versus interference with baby's behavior. Physical and psychological availability versus ignoring and neglecting. Acceptance versus rejection of baby's needs. Even in the crying baby, like, am I able to set aside what I'm doing right now to take care of this individual? Can I 
understand the cues that that my baby's giving me like this was something that was very big in the infant massage teaching like to know when the baby was saying yes give me touch or no I don't want touch like babies can say no like they get overwhelmed and and to not take that personally it's like no they're just kind of done or this is just not the right time and that doesn't mean I don't like you or won't not want you to touch me so it's like just again that adulting of you know can I be sensitive to the cues my child is giving me about what they really need and what they don't. Yeah, those are really those. So that's from Mary Ainsworth's um, sensitivity scales. Uh, one of the most profound descriptions of love I've ever read in my life. It is so beautiful and so intricate. She is just such a genius. And nobody knows about these scales. They've, they were mimeographed for years and they, you know, relatively recently published. But, you know, one of the things that I want to point out here is that it's not a matter of I am accepting or I'm neglecting. It's a, it's a scale, a nine point scale. So you can be really rejecting in, you know, and then you can be really attuned in other ways. And, and so these are good questions to ask ourselves, not to get to some end game of like, wow, I'm a parent, but like, these are things that I can think about. And these are ways that I can enter this um, relationship. These are, these are doors. These are windows um, of entering, not, you know, these are ways to judge myself. There was a couple of things in the book also at the end talking about um, this couple that works with vulnerable populations, populations yeah. that, you know, you would think could create insecure attachment. I think the steels are the name. Mm-hmm. Dr. So, mm-hmm. um, and they did this really innovative thing with, with filming, um, their yes. parents, uh, the parents with their kids where, you know, most parents would worry, oh, how am I coming across to a stranger or videographer taking this video and seeing how I am with my child? Talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was really useful. Um, yeah, for yeah, parents. yeah. No, they do amazing work um, on video interventions. And so they, they do work with vulnerable populations, families who are at risk of losing their children because of abuse or neglect. <clears throat> and so one of the ways that they work with these families by in helping them become quote better parents more sensitive parents um, instead of doing one-on-one interventions they work in a group they do video where where people are videoed with their child and then reflected back with one of the social workers or one of the researchers to sort of help them through that and give them support because that's a very that can be a very painful experience right. to see yourself in that way and, but that's, that's how we develop reflective functioning or mentalization, the capacity to see ourselves. We have to be able to tolerate, like we were talking about before, when our child cries and we have some negative feelings, we have to be able to tolerate that and expand our level of tolerance. Right. Bob Marvin is um, one of Mary Ainsworth's, well, Mary Ainsworth's um, executor and, um, you know, someone that he, that she worked with. And he does this incredible um, work with vulnerable mothers who are at risk of losing their children. And they all work, they, they do this group um, video project together with the mothers and the babies. And he and his team take um, episodes or clips from where the mother and the baby had these like moments. And these are mothers who did, did not have secure caregiving in their history. So they don't know it hasn't been modeled for them. So they don't really know how to do it other than they're human. And so they have the capacity for delight. And so what um, Bob Marvin's team did was he, they go through and they, they video 
these mothers and babies together and they take the clips where they're getting it right, where there's like a smile, a shared smile, a balloon going up, you know, any kind of a, a, a tender touch. They edit this video so that every mother is seen in her best, most delighting experience with the baby. And they create this, this, you know, they pull it all together and they show it to the mothers with the soundtrack of You Are So Beautiful to Me over it. Mm. And they show it to the mothers and the mothers get in their body. I mean, I don't know if you're feeling this right now, but in my body right now, I'm feeling tingly and excited Mm. and so warm to think about that, you know, these women seeing themselves in in the best light with their child. And that's a way of imprinting them to, to give them the experience of seeing what it's like to delight. And then they can, you know, start to practice that, but we have to see it and we have to be able to see ourselves. And that's where the video work comes in. And it's a very handy, but painful tool. Imagine it, you know, (laughs) I I don't know if I can handle it. I I remember being a high school teacher and was dreading when I'd be observed by the principal or the super, you know, imagine if they put me on film. I mean, because frankly, there's not enough, uh, training for teachers until they get into the club. You don't learn it in grad school or anywhere other than by doing it. And so to see right. yourself on film <laughs> doing it, making it up as you go along can be really excruciating, but very yes. valuable. Especially very if valuable. you're a marginalized mother, single mother. I mean, it's just, of course, they have to do the hardest things all the time. Right. And and yeah. you're you're sort of pushing against the negative the natural negative bias of the brain like you know a mother's going to think she's doing it wrong all the time exactly. and to like sit down and have her watch two or three minutes of her doing it right it's absolutely brilliant because it just yeah, I know, opens that door. What is it you think about Mary Ainsworth that drew Bethany to her so passionately? Can you close out the show talking a little bit about Mary Ainsworth and the value of her contribution and what she means to you? Um, sure. Gosh. Well, Mary Ainsworth, um, you know, when people think of attachment theory, they think of John Bowlby. Yes. And then they often will say, and Mary Ainsworth was his student, which was not true. She was not his student. She was his colleague. She worked with him in London and she did not believe the work that he was doing on attachment. She thought that he was full of it and wrong. And so when she went to Uganda with her husband, she thought, well, let me, let me study mothers and babies and see if what he was talking about was real and she quickly discovered that it was in fact real. And so she did the first empirical study of attachment because she was trying to understand what this man was talking about. And um, she, so she's an unsung, you know, hero of, of science. And so I love her for that. I guess. She was just so smart and so human, really loved people and had incredible relationships with the people that she studied. She, you know, would stay over to people's houses for dinner. She became really close with some of these people. Um, and she was really a woman of her time. She, you know, simultaneously took to task the Johns Hopkins provost for not giving her the same amount of money as, as men. She staged a, a sit-in in the men's faculty lounge so that, you know, women could be allowed <laughs> to go there. But at the same time, Wonderful. she was, you know, she took a back seat to her young husband's work all the time. Okay. And and she struggled with that. And they ended up getting divorced. And she went into psychoanalysis, which really helped her become more alive to herself, create her own sense of delight. And so she was really living in parallel with the work that she was studying. And um, so I just find her a fascinating figure and someone that really taught me how to delight. And this book is a real tribute to her 
And to you, yeah. I have to say, it was a really enjoyable read. It's not a tough, difficult oh, science so text read. And, of course, it's oh, valued as one of the best science books of 2020. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, Bethany, we thank you so much for being here. Bethany Thanks Saltman, for having me. The author of the book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. It is a terrific read, folks. And if you want to be, get in touch with Bethany or check out her blog, which is a really wonderful blog, it's on uh, BethanySaltman.com. She's also a book coach and is doing some coaching circles right now. So we'd like to thank our affiliates airing The Positive Mind, KACR in Alameda, California, KAOS in Olympia, Washington, KXCR in Florence, Oregon, KYGT, Idaho Springs, Colorado, KPPQ, Ventura, California, WGRN, Columbus, Ohio, WRWK, Richmond, Virginia. Our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org. That's short for the Foundation for Positive Psychology.org with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. Coming to a radio station near you, Bethany Saltman, thanks again for being with us. Look forward to thanks your so future work. Thanks so much for work. having me. Thank you. Bye-bye for now, folks. Mm-hmm.